Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. On our program today, budget blowout. This budget makes a historic investment in early learning and childcare. After 50 years of talking about it and fighting for it, we're finally going to get it done. Canadians were expecting a pandemic budget. This is an election budget, and a poor one at that. The new federal budget promises national childcare, a green transition, and $101 billion of new spending. But when will the childcare plan actually materialize, and why is there no plan to get back to balance? We'll sit down with Canada's finance minister, Chrystia Freeland, and then the parliamentary budget officer, Yves Giroux, weighs in on the numbers on the scrum. Then, variants versus vaccines. At this time, and based on current evidence, NACI recommends that the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine may be offered to individuals 30 years of age and older without contraindications if the individual does not wish to wait for an mRNA vaccine and the benefits outweigh the risk. Why are younger people suddenly more eligible for the AstraZeneca vaccine? And will there be a shortage of that vaccine as Canada battles new variants. We're joined by the chair of the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, Dr. Caroline Quash, and Procurement Minister Anita Anand. Plus, getting it wrong? I know we got it wrong. I know we made a mistake. And for that, I'm sorry, and I sincerely apologize. Because as Premier, as I said right from the beginning, the buck stops with me. After a tearful apology for getting many of the restrictions wrong, what will Ontario's new promise for paid sick leave actually look like? Will they reverse other controversial restrictions? We'll ask Ontario MP David Pacini, who's speaking for the Ford government, and then Dr. Sharkawi weighs in on the federal government's shutting down flights from India and Pakistan. Too little, too late? We'll find out. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. It's the biggest budget since the Second World War. Spending includes $101 billion over the next three years on big new programs like a national child care program, green infrastructure, and extending pandemic-related support programs until the end of September. The cost of all this? Well, the deficit this year will hit $354 billion. And there's no promise ever to come into balance. Instead, there's a $30 billion deficit predicted in five years. So when will this promised childcare program actually be established with the economy heating up faster than predicted? Is this really the time to spend all those billions in stimulus? Let's find out. Joining me now, the Finance Minister of Canada, Christian Freeland. Minister, great to have you on the program after the, the budget. The centerpiece, of course, is the promise of a $30 billion over five-year national child care program on an average of 10 bucks a day for that. It's been promised for decades, as you, probably since you and I were kids. Um, you have to negotiate with the provinces to do this. How fast do you plan to get this implemented? Depends on how fast the provinces and territories want to do it. We're going to look for willing partners. We are going to be very much in listening mode. We have ambitious targets. We've put money on the table. I think Canadians are ready to get this done. And the good news for the provinces and territories, as much as for the federal government, is this is a policy which will make our economy grow. Okay, I'm going to pick up on that. Quebec already has a program, though. I know your program's kind of modeled on their program. They're expected to get about $6 billion of the $30 billion promise. 
Um, do they get to spend that money on anything they want, or will your government have strings attached and say, Quebec, I know you've got it, but you can't take the, the, the billions earmarked for childcare and spend it on, on bridges. Will you tie it to childcare? So you, you know, worked a few assumptions in there into your question, Evan. Um, and I just want to be clear that this, this is just the beginning of the journey. Um, we're going to have a bilateral negotiation with each province and territory, very much including Quebec. Uh, and we're really going to be a collaborative partner. We're going to listen. Obviously, the situation with Quebec is, is unique because Quebec already has a system in place. But what I do hear from women in Quebec is that they need more spaces. And I also know how expensive this is. So I think this is really good news for Quebec, that the federal government is going to be there now for the first time as a full partner to help. Okay, but I'm going to press you on an answer for that. I know that you're right, there is a shortage of spaces, sometimes a 50,000 space shortage in Quebec. Will you make this strings attached? They can only spend this money on childcare. You know, what I have believed, you know, Evan, I've been through a few negotiations at this point in my life as a politician. And I think it's important to go into a negotiation, especially with our partners in Canada, with a collaborative attitude. And that's what we're going to do. You've argued, and you just did, that there's an economic case for this. In the budget, it says that once this is implemented, it will actually grow the economy by 0.05% of GDP a year. Um, there are hundreds of other promises there. That's not a lot of economic growth. There's not a lot of revenue generation in this budget. In other words, there wasn't a lot of taxes. Um, have you considered raising uh, taxes in the future, like raising the GST in order to pay for all these programs? So what we have said, just quickly on early learning and childcare, what we've also said in the budget about it is once we get this program in place, we calculate it will have the most impact for Canada of any economic policy since NAFTA. We think it gives us a permanent lift of GDP of 1.2%. So that is meaningful. And there are by now tons of studies based on Quebec, showing that every dollar invested in early learning and childcare more than comes back to the government. So it is a great economic policy. In terms of revenue, there are some other revenue raising measures in the budget in terms of sort of direct taxes. There's a real push on tax evasion, a real push on closing loopholes. We commit to a digital services tax. There's a luxury tax. There's a tax on non-resident, non-Canadian vacant property. So there are some revenue raising measures. Okay. I know there are some taxes. You say luxury boats, cars, and, and planes, pretty minor stuff in the digital tax. But, yeah, the assumptions are on growth and that low interest rates are going to remain, although there's concerns about that. But there is a, the deficit's an interesting thing, Minister. In five years, you never have a plan to get to zero. You only plan to get to $30 billion of deficit before five years. Zero used to be what people wanted to do. But this is before any other promises in the next five years. And, and Minister, the Prime Minister just this past week has said to the provinces, yeah, we're going to increase the health transfer, which they have asked for. If the Prime Minister is already saying that he's going to increase the health transfer, shouldn't you have put that in your budget projections and your deficit projections? The calculations in the budget, all the numbers we put forward, 
are characteristically careful and prudent. And that very much goes for the growth projections. The Ministry of Finance of Canada since the 1990s has had a don't mark your own homework approach to growth projections. What we do is we talk to private sector economists and take an average of their projections. So I just want that to be clear to Canadians. On the Canada health transfer, we knew that the third wave was coming. And so in March, yeah, and we knew that provinces and territories were going to need support right. to fight it. And so we put $5 billion on the table in March ahead of the budget to help them. In terms right. of the longer-term status of the Canadian health care system, right. we know there are some conversations we need to have, and we look forward to having them. But, okay, but he's made the promise. Just quickly, the parliamentary budget officer said your fiscal capacity is now at its maximum limit. You're getting into structural deficit. If more spending is coming, like a new health care... Uh, uh, promise, how will you pay for it without just more structural deficits? So speaking about this budget, I actually want to push back really hard against the notion that there that this is not a sustainable fiscal path, that it is structurally unsustainable. We get down in 25-26 to a deficit of just over 1%, and we have a steadily declining debt-to-GDP ratio. Canada has now, even after the extraordinary spending we've had to undertake to fight COVID, the lowest net debt to GDP ratio in the G7. So I want Canadians to understand, yes, this is an ambitious plan to invest in jobs and growth. It is also careful. It is prudent. It is well within our fiscal capacity. Okay, uh, although he says that doesn't account for future promises like health care, and he's concerned about the deficit. It just, I'll ask you a last question here. Do you have, have, has your government abandoned a promise to get back to balance? I know you're talking about $30 billion deficit. That's, maybe that's the new zero in 2021. Has your government abandoned a promise ever to balance the books? So you just quoted the parliamentary budget officer, and I do need to point out one thing. He also predicted that we would have a deficit for 2021 of $360 billion or more, and we've actually come in below that. We've come in at $354 billion. So that, to me, just underscores the care and the prudence of our projections and our forecasting. When it comes to debt and deficits and going forward, we have been clear, we were clear in the budget document, that our commitment to Canadians is a declining debt-to-GDP ratio, which we show here clearly, and unwinding the COVID-related deficits, which we also show with a deficit that falls by 25, 26 to just over 1%. All right, I, I got to leave it there. I appreciate your time, Minister Freeland. Thanks for joining us. Okay, great to be with you. All right, coming up, new vaccine concerns. AstraZeneca, now safe for people 30 and up, but is there confusion about if people should take it or not? And is there enough supply for the new demands? We'll ask the Minister of Procurement, Anita Anand, and the Chair of the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, Dr. Caroline Quash. Stay right here with Question Period. NACI advises jurisdictions to adjust the age threshold for use of AstraZeneca vaccine based on this local epidemiology. The optimal use of the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine in our immunization programs across the country will also vary 
based on current and expected vaccine supply and the logistical considerations that we are facing. With the third wave of COVID rising, there's an urgent need to get more Canadians vaccinated, as you know. As of Friday, people over the age of 30 are now eligible to get the AstraZeneca vaccine. That happened after the National Advisory Committee on Immunization changed its guidance from 50 and up to 30 and up. But how clear was the recommendation? After all, NACI says that people 30 and up can take it, quote, if the individual does not wish to wait for an mRNA vaccine and the benefits outweigh the risk. What does that actually mean? With vaccine hesitancy a real concern, is this an admission that Canadians should prefer one vaccine over another? Let's find out. Joining me now is the chair of the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, Dr. Caroline Quash. Dr. Quash, now that NACI has lowered the age of eligibility for AstraZeneca to 30 and up, uh, but it came with a caveat. Health officials have repeatedly said the best vaccine is the first one you're offered, but in your recommendations it said if you're 30 and up, you can take AstraZeneca, quote, if the individual does not want to wait for an mRNA vaccine, that's Pfizer or, M or Moderna, and the benefits outweigh the risk. What does that mean? Isn't that, aren't we just supposed to take the, the first one available? I, I'm trying to translate that. What does it mean? Yeah, what it means is we really want this to be an informed consent process because these clots are not benign. Um, and so it's really all about the, the perception of risk from the individual. If you're in an area where there's tons of COVID and everybody's going to the ICU, to me, it's easy. You take the first vaccine that comes up. But for somebody who would live in an area where there's no COVID, where that person never leaves home, and that person knows that based on their age group or priorities, they would have access to an mRNA vaccine next week, I think it's reasonable for them to wait. So it's not to say, you know, wait for four months. We know that based on the um, supplies of mRNA vaccines that are expected in Canada, the wait time is somewhere between one and seven weeks, depending on what age band you're in. But it seems now that you've kind of said there's now two classes of vaccines. If you're desperate, take AstraZeneca, by the way, the one I got. But you know what? If you can't get but only take it if you can't get an mRNA, the, the better ones. Are you contributing to vaccine hesitancy here? Because we got a third wave, we got the variants. Is that a mixed message that could be dangerous? Yeah, I understand what you're saying. But from the get-go, NACI, the committee had said that uh, they were putting a preferential recommendation on the mRNA because in terms of efficacy, they were better for all age groups and there were no safety signals. So it's, it's in, you know, we're continuing to say what we said from the beginning, which is at this point in time, mRNA is preferential. If you look at other um, countries, a lot of people have done the same. Um, Australia has put a preferential recommendation on mRNA. I think we have to also be transparent. I, you know, to, when I look at Canadians, I think they're intelligent and they need to know what we know. So this is our evaluation. But, I but, understand. Yes. But I just, I just worry, like, again, there's a lot of people I saying, understand. Oh, oh, now I heard Dr. Quash say this is preferential. This is better. You know what? I'm not getting, even though the third wave is hitting, like I've heard people say this, I'm going to wait for the Pfizer because I've heard it's the better one. It's preferential. It's lower risk. And, and then the doctors are saying, no, look at the UK. Take whatever you can get right now. I, I'm deeply concerned about the mixed I messaging know. here. I, I understand. And that's why we're saying, you know, when, when it's raging out there, 
you have much more benefit by getting any vaccine now than waiting. That's why you need to look at the uh, epidemiology in your community. As I said, if I was in an area, a hotspot area, where you know there's transmission and ICU are filling up, then of course all the benefits are there to take the whatever vaccine comes first. That's clear. But the way we did our risk analysis was based on this wait time between the AstraZeneca and the mRNA vaccine. Okay, so uh, it's a third wave. If you can get a vaccine, take it. But uh, very interesting and uh, frankly complicated though. Uh, Dr. Quash, I always appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you. So the age of eligibility for the AstraZeneca vaccine now lowered to 30 plus, and the demand for it is clearly going up. But will there be the supply of that vaccine and others to fill the growing demand and beat back the variants? Let's find out. Joining me now is Canada's Minister of Procurement, Anita Anand. Minister, always a pleasure to have you on the program. I want to start with AstraZeneca. Um, late last week, there was a report in the New York Times that the factory that made the 1.5 million doses of AstraZeneca that the U.S. shipped to Canada was made in a plant in Baltimore where there has been many concerns about contaminated doses. They actually threw out close to 3 million doses there. Did Health Canada inspect that plant? Were those doses shipped to Canada? Uh, were they made sure they, they, they were safe because they're now in Canadians' arms? Of course, uh, very good question, and thanks for having me on, Evan. Uh, when we were made aware of the issue relating to the plant, we immediately contacted our supplier, and the supplier assured us that stringent quality control had occurred and that none of the doses uh, that Canada received were affected by the issues at the plant. Last week, the head of the Public Health Agency of Canada told the Health Committee that the vaccine rollout, I'm using the words quoted there, is running at half capacity. We know that India cancelled shipping Canada 1.5 million more doses of AstraZeneca. Um, and we know the age for AstraZeneca has now been lowered to 30 and up. So the demand is up, the supply is low, and we're running at half capacity. How are we going to get more AstraZeneca here if the U.S. is not shipping them to us? Well, Evan, in reality, India did not cancel that contract for doses from the Serum Institute. They are undergoing a very, very difficult time with massive amounts of cases and deaths, and we are in discussion with serum for the delivery of those doses once india has passed this very difficult but they're, but they're not coming as expected is that fair to say we expected them they're not coming we expect them before the end of june uh, they're not here this month but we do expect to receive them and in, indeed the serum institute has told us that we will still receive those doses evan we will also receive a million doses from astrazeneca under our apa in the month of june if not before and we will receive doses from the COVAX facility. So all told, prior to the end of June, we will have 4 million more doses of AstraZeneca in the country, and we are still negotiating with the United States for additional doses. Uh, but I want to stress that Pfizer is accounting for 60% of all doses that are coming into the country. And so perhaps it would be useful to ensure that Pfizer is distributed in other locations, uh, not only in the current uh, set of locations, given that 60% of our deliveries are from Pfizer. 
course, we also are expecting Moderna next week as well as J&J. That's our diversified portfolio, and we will continue bringing in doses as a result of it. Can, can I just press you on that? You, so Pfizer's the workhorse, as you've said, because Moderna's been plagued with problems. The 1.2 million doses that were supposed to have been set, they, those were delayed, as you talked about. Uh, but you're saying that, you know, the Pfizer, which is in the hospitals, it's been impossible for a lot of people to get access to. There's certain age restrictions. You're saying, are you suggesting that the provinces should widen the availability? Do, how would that happen and what are you kind of suggesting there? Because I think this is really important what you're saying. The provinces, of course, are responsible for the administration of the vaccine. My point from a procurement uh, standpoint is simply that 60% of our procurements or thereabouts right now are from one very reliable supplier, Pfizer, and uh, it would be useful for us to think about uh, broadening out the areas in which it is being administered so the public can have more access to it. Okay, so how, how and so meaning what? I know there's cold chain issues that are not as stringent as they were a number of months ago. You're saying maybe at pharmacies, Pfizer should be available, family doctors, mm -hmm. where? Well, what we are doing as a federal government is to make sure that if the provinces and territories do alter where Pfizer is being uh, delivered, that we have the supplies to support. So we have the freezers and deep freezers. We have procured the syringes and the needles and the swabs and the gauze, and we will support the delivery of vaccine in whatever location it, the provinces decide. Okay, I, that sounds like an olive branch of the provinces, like we, we'll help you take us up on that. Um, Minister Anand, always good to have you on the program. I appreciate it, thank you. Thanks Evan, take care. All right, coming up, getting it wrong. Ontario Premier Doug Ford apologized for getting the restrictions wrong as the third wave ravages his province. What will he change? Why did he suddenly flip-flop on paid sick leave? Ontario Member of Provincial Parliament and Ford Government Spokesperson David Pacini joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. I want all of you to know that I will always try to do what's right. And that means if we get something wrong or make a mistake, we'll fix it as soon as we can, like we did this past weekend. But I know that many people continue to be unhappy right now. And I understand that I accept the responsibility for that. I got it wrong. Ontario Premier Doug Ford admitted that his province's restrictions on playgrounds and enhancing police powers were wrong, and he apologized. He also suddenly reversed his position on provincial paid sick leave. He said he would now put forward a plan for that, but he hasn't changed restrictions on other outdoor activities, despite his own science table members saying he should, nor has he restricted the list of essential businesses that are allowed to remain open in the third wave. Why not? Well, we requested, as we do every week, Premier Doug Ford, but he declined to come on the program. Ontario's Health Minister Christine Elliott also declined, but Ford Government Spokesman David Pacini, Ontario's Parliamentary Assistant to the Minister of Colleges and Universities, was made available, and he joins us now. Welcome to the program, Mr. Pacini. I, I want to start with the Premier's apology late last week. He said he made a mistake with closing playgrounds and giving police new powers. These are specifically things that the Ontario Science Table did, did not ask for. They, they had recommended that your government shorten the list of essential work that can be open. Your government didn't do that. Um, 
they didn't. They said there was no data showing that the virus spreads out outdoors. Will your government now listen to the science table, limit the workplaces that are open, and let people gather outside in small groups if they wear a mask? Yeah, Evan. Well, first and foremost, I think you know it is as I've said, refreshing to see a politician just take responsibility, apologize, full stop. This wasn't a learning lesson for all of us. This was a politician that took responsibility. Uh, with respect to your point about the science table and and those decisions, again, the, as the premier said, the intent here was to move uh, quickly. One of the things we've heard from rural Ontario mayors like mine is with respect to mobility and uh, variants of concern coming from hotspots and spreading throughout the province of Ontario. Okay, so let me try to get a specific answer here. Will your government shorten the list of essential work that can be open? Because the doctors on the science table specifically said it's not outdoors where the vectors are. That's not what the data says. The data is clear that the virus is spreading at workplaces and as people going to work. Will, will you now shorten the list, close some of those works during the third wave on the work front? Yes or no on that? So what we'll do, has the science table specifically specified where? Because uh, what they've said to us and what they've said is we, we know that there are certain essential workplaces. We know that large uh, settings where people uh, work in factories, et cetera. If you look to Australia and other specific uh, other countries that have taken some of the strictest measures on the planet, they still maintain manufacturing and things essential to our supply chain. So, Evan, I think, I mean, it, it's careful. We have to carefully balance our supply chain, ensuring that, that our foods uh, food remain on our shelves. But that's not what I'm talking about. No, but to be fair, there's a different... Again, I'm talking to Dr. Bogosh. They're just saying you've, and, and I'm talking to mayors like Bonnie Crombie in Mississauga. She's in the hot zone. She's saying your list of what's essential is too wide. Home construction right now, they say not essential. There are things on that. And, and I think for a lot of folks, sir, they, they wonder, how does it make sense that your government says you can't ride a bike outside with one friend who's not in your household, but you can go to a, a wedding inside with 10 people? You can go shopping inside, but you can't go outside with your next door neighbor. Why does that make sense? Well, again, Evan, I think that, as I've said, you know, you just referenced, we've heard mayors, some days it's open everything up, then the next days it's close everything down. The premier hears from mayors, the premier hears from the CFIB, the premier hears from our, our science table. We've had among the strictest restrictions on the planet. I know you said that you've acted quickly. You know on February 11th, Dr. Steiny Brown, the head of the science table, predicted a disastrous third wave if you opened up. Your government opened up. It's not solely responsible for the third wave, but your government made decisions that have made this worse. The, the premier has admitted that. I'm just trying to figure out how you're going to fix it. Evan, what the Premier talked about was measures last weekend. With respect to what you're referring to here, this idea that the third wave is somehow unique in Ontario flies in the face of reality. This third wave has spread around the globe. We know the reason it hasn't affected other countries like ours is because they invested in vaccine. They've vaccinated at faster rates because they actually secured supply early on. They took strict measures at the border. Now, with respect to in Ontario, we did move decisively. We've been among the re most restricted jurisdictions. We were the first to close schools. We were the first to deploy nurses. We were the first to launch a comprehensive domestic supply chain for PPE. The first to implement job protected leave. The, one of the first jurisdictions to suspend evictions. So we continue to act decisively. Okay, but, but, Can we do more, Evan? Mi Mr. Mr. Pacini, I, I don't know if, just, with ICUs about to be overwhelmed, the Premier apologized. I don't know if this is the time to be 
bragging about the record. Look, things are bad. Let's let's admit that. The premier's had turned just a second. The the and and again, the advice on February third or February eleventh was clear and it didn't happen. But let's talk about I want because for time reasons, I want to go to paid sick leave, Mr. Puccini. Uh, mm -hmm. your government um, ICU doctors, again, the science table, they've been widely consistent in their message. They want uh, paid sick leave from a provincial level more than just the federal program. Oh, in the last months, your government has been defending that the federal sick leave program was enough. Now, remember, you're a government that got rid of the two guaranteed paid sick leaves in the province back in 2018 when you passed your Making Ontario Open for Business Act. Yes. You gave three unpaid, but you weren't into paid sick leave. It wasn't enough. Suddenly, that's changed. In the third wave, when what did you what changed your government's mind on provincial paid sick leave? Well, first and foremost, Evan, the paid sick days you referred to. Look at any comparative competitive jurisdiction in North America, and you'll see the rationale behind the decisions we made. The decisions that punish small businesses, the decisions that led to manufacturing fleeing this province, the Dart plant closure. Craft, so many businesses in my community, people who had who were self-employed, people who were employed, who were then on on Ontario Works. That's the reality. We had to make Ontario uh, a, a. But a you've gone back now. Now you yeah, say so now. First now first you didn't need it. Now you say you need it. So what changed? Evan, you got to let me explain the context here. Where we go to today is then the premier works in the context of a global pandemic with all of his partners at the first minister's table, led by an NDP government in BC, which. The premiers acknowledged. Jagmeet Singh, the NDP leader federally, have long advocated for a federal program. EI, think about your taxes. Any viewers at home, what is the fastest way to get government uh, get money to Canadians? That is through the federal government. It's been widely accepted that that is the fastest way to get money. I know there's a federal uh, program that gives $450 yes. after tax. It doesn't quite add up to minimum wage. It's now four weeks. Remember. I know that's what the federal government did in the pandemic. This is provincial jurisdiction. I, I haven't seen a, a province welcome the, the, the federal government get into provincial jurisdiction. Okay, just tell me, when will we see this promise program and the details of the Ontario? Is it just going to be a top-up of the uh, federal government money, or will you actually have a provincial paid sick leave program? Well, I think there's some nuance there, Evan, that I think is worth acknowledging. And I think the fact is, is that we know that by we can't put this on the backs of our smallest businesses. This is amendments to the employ, uh, you know, Employment Services Act, and and you know that when we look at how that money is flows into the hands of of workers, we need to make sure that it doesn't punish the smallest employers. I think we have to get it right and making sure that we're not punishing employers. I just the only reason I'm pushing. I, you must, because this essential workers are going to work sick. That's the whole point of paid sick leave. It's become a vector of the of, of the pandemic. When will this program that your government has changed on? When will you introduce the details? Evan, I appreciate you, uh, you know, encouraging our government to work swiftly on this, and we are doing it. No other jurisdiction, Evan. No other jurisdiction in Canada is moving and has signaled even making a move on this. Ontario has. All right, I got to leave it there. David Puccini, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Evan. All right, coming up, third wave. The federal government stops flights from India and Pakistan for 30 days, but is it too little, too late to stop the new variant? The Scrum returns next with special guest, CTV News infectious disease specialist, Dr. Abdu Sharkawi. Stay right here with Question Period. Across the country, the number of daily new cases has more than doubled.
in the past month. Hospitalizations have also increased and are still increasing. And there are more contagious and more dangerous variants out there. The situation is critical. Well, the third wave is turning out to be the worst wave. New restrictions even hitting once protected provinces like Nova Scotia. Ontario, though, has been hit hardest. The response there has also been the most controversial and the most confusing. Restrictions on playgrounds, new powers for police, all quickly rolled back by Premier Doug Ford, who tearfully apologized for making mistakes. He also did a 180 on paid sick leave, something he opposed since he's been elected. He'd canceled a paid sick leave program in that province. Now he says he's got a plan. Meanwhile, the federal government has shut down flights from India and Pakistan for 30 days due to the new Indian variant of COVID-19. But is that too little too late? Will the vaccine rollout, more than 14 million vaccines are now in Canada, ever catch up to the variants? Let's find out. The scrum is back. Joyce Napier, the CTV News Ottawa Bureau Chief, is here. Robert Benzie, the Toronto Star's Queen's Park Bureau Chief, is here. And our special guest today in this round is the CTV News Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Abdu Sharkawi. Great to have all of you on, on the program. Uh, Dr. Sharkawi, let me just start with you. Um, restrictions in Ontario, um, I know they went back and forth, as I just mentioned, um, but the Premier apologized, and he's promising to get this right. Are these enough to flatten the curve, or are there still things they need to do? No, I think we have to refine this even further. I'm, I'm glad that there was a realization that it's important to keep outdoor activities alive when it comes to social, mental, physical well-being. Uh, but let's not forget about the business sector as well. It's important for uh, our economic survival and small businesses to be able to thrive as well. And I think that we should be able to open up some businesses if curbside pickup is a possibility, especially if they are essential goods that are being uh, uh, delivered uh, from those establishments. Uh, we need to make sure that whatever we're doing is evidence-based, is science-based, and is not based on any form of political whim or pressure. And unfortunately, that seems to be the guiding theme through much of this pandemic. Yeah, he has not uh, shortened the list of essential work, Robert Benzie. Let me just quickly go to paid sick leave. BC had a budget last week. They didn't put in paid sick leave. I don't think nine provinces have it. I know there's a federal program, but, but Doug Ford has flipped on that. What do they now plan to do on paid sick leave, if anything, uh, in, the, in the short term? Well, Evan, they're planning to, to bolster the federal program that pays $450 a week after taxes. It's a complicated program to access. Workers don't get paid right away, sometimes waiting three days, four days. And the kind of people who have jobs that they don't have paid sick leave need money right away. Uh, they can't, they don't have a lot of savings sometimes. And, th and this is something that the Ontario government is coming to that realization. They've taken a huge political hit and it is a major flip-flop because remember, uh, Ontario had a paid sick leave program until 2018 when Doug Ford's Conservatives defeated Kathleen Wynne's Liberals and then they got rid of it. They haven't brought in an emergency one during the pandemic. There's been a lot of pressure from the NDP, from the Liberals, from the Greens to do that. Business communities, uh, the business community, uh, the uh, labor unions and others have said you should really do this, but they've resisted until now when they had this disastrous press conference on April 16th, the walk back on April 17th, and then uh, you know, Doug Ford's tearful press conference in his mother's house where he's under ice, in isolation, uh, under quarantine. It's like a cinematic uh, week for, for Ford, really. And now this back, this backtrack, this flip-flop, yeah. uh, this U-turn on, on paid sick leave, which they have to do. 
uh, because the doctors say, look, it will keep people from going to work sick. Yeah, that's been, a, that's been one vector. So in the middle of that kind of shambolic uh, week of back and forth, Joyce, the, actually Doug Ford and the Premier of Quebec, Premier Legault, demanded that the federal government lock down the borders, and then they finally did. Aaron O'Toole asked the same thing. So the federal government announced, you know, uh, no more flights from Pakistan and India for 30 days because of the variant there. Too little, too late on borders. People had asked that about the variants for months. Well, clearly, I mean, we knew, for instance, at Christmas that people would be traveling. We also know something, and we've put these people on the air. They come back from abroad, but instead of coming and landing in Canada in one of the Canadian uh, airports where they have to go through those three days in a federal uh, a hotel and all those restrictions, they land somewhere close to the border in the U.S. and then travel by car and cross the border where there are not the same restrictions. I mean, that was sort of like a huge open wound. Um, so, you know, and we know that most of the travelers are Canadians uh, that come back to Canada. That is the majority of travelers. Closing it to India is a good idea, but when the federal government says we have some of the strictest restrictions, actually no, because I read other papers and other countries have had very strict restrictions and have reacted sooner. Okay, so just picking up from what Joyce said, uh, Dr. Sharkawi, uh, how concerned are you about the variant and are measures like closing borders or shutting down some flights enough? Well, I don't think they are enough and I think that they're not enough, uh, not only in principle, in terms of how widely it's applied, but the scale as well. Uh, we have to recognize that global travel is something that goes through many of these uh, highly endemic countries at this point in time. Uh, I'm glad that the federal government put in an extra uh, policy measure in terms of the test through any connecting flight prior to coming into Canada uh, through any of these places. Uh, but we've got to apply this broadly. When we look at true success stories like in Australia, you've got to shut down all, all international travel uh, until this settles down. And when we talk about people uh, getting through this or skirting the policy, there are people going through land borders. Uh, we've got to make sure that, that our border across the U.S. Is, is better controlled and screening restrictions. And frankly, even within Canada, We've got a P1 variant that's raging through much of British Columbia. Anybody can get on a plane right now from Vancouver and fly to Toronto, potentially carrying the P1 variant through the plane and into the community here in Toronto, uh, and no one is the wiser. So that has to change. We've got to have consistency across all jurisdictions, across all borders. I got to leave it there. Um, Robert Benzie, Dr. Sharkawi, thanks for your work and thanks to both of you. Uh, Joyce is going to stay with us because we're talking budget blowout when we come back. The first budget in two years came. Promised to spend $101 billion in the next three years. No plan to get back to balance is this time to spend on programs like national childcare. How's that going to work? We will talk about that with the parliamentary budget officer, Yves Giroux, as our special guest. Next, stay with us on Question Period. The Prime Minister gave the Finance Minister a mandate letter instructing her to do three things. First, avoid creating new permanent spending. Second, review Canada's debt management strategy. And third, present a new fiscal anchor. Why did the minister ignore these directives? And is she going to ignore future ones as well? Our budget sets out a prudent and sustainable fiscal path. And we set out a clear fiscal anchor. We commit 
to a declining debt to GDP ratio and to unwinding the COVID deficits. Well, it was a brand new pandemic budget, two years in the making. It promised massive new spending of over $101 billion, including long-term investments in a national child care plan, green technology, extending pandemic-related programs until the end of September. Didn't include long-term health funding for the provinces. They wanted that. Didn't have a promise to get back to some kind of balance. There's a projected deficit of close to $354 billion this year and $30 billion in deficit in five years. But that's before any new spending promises in the coming years. Should the deficits be a concern with the economy projected to be red hot in the near term? Is more stimulus really needed? Let's dig into the budget and the fallout of it. The Scrum is back. Joyce Napier, our CTV News Ottawa Bureau Chief, is back. Amanda Lang joins us, the host of BNN Bloomberg's uh, programs. Thanks so much for being here. And our special guest this round is the Parliamentary Budget Officer himself, Yves Giroux. All right, uh, let's get into this. Uh, Yves Giroux, you've been saying before you were concerned about the spending capacity and structural deficit. Do you have concerns about the assumptions made in this budget that are used to justify the spending over the next five years? Well, I've expressed concerns before the budget that the government's plan to spend up to $100 billion to return the uh, labor markets to pre-pandemic levels might be too much and might be uh, too, too late because uh, before the budget, our forecast indicated that the labor market could return to its pre-pandemic level either by the end of this year or very early in 2022. So what we saw in the budget is that confirmation of that. So the government itself showed in the budget that without any stimulus measures, um, most labor market indicators would return to pre-pandemic levels by the end of this year or early next. Uh, but what the government also indicated is that the stimulus that they introduced in the budget would not just be for returning to pre-pandemic levels of employment, but also to change, make structural changes to the economy. And that's an entirely different issue. I, I don't pronounce on that because that's the policy choice, but from purely an economic perspective, that might not have been necessary. But as I said, the government chose to use that money to, to make structural changes, which is a matter of policy policy choices. Well, Amanda can pronounce on those things, uh, both, uh, and so can Joyce. Uh, Amanda, the, one of those policy choices was uh, national child care. That's kind of, that was the centerpiece. It has to be negotiated yep. with the provinces. In the budget, though, it actually said uh, that this is going to prov provide about 0.05% of GDP growth, even though the government says this is essential uh, for the labor force and it's, it's a real economic return on investment. What do you make of the case for um, national child care? Good investment economically or, or just a really good investment for a lot of families? So, and I, this is a really important point, Evan, because we're being asked to adopt this new term of social infrastructure. Um, and it's not overly pedantic, I will say, to, uh, to insist that we not accept that term. Uh, because what it does is say social spending and programs, which childcare is one, healthcare is another, education is a third, should be funded the way infrastructure is funded, i.e. with debt. And we've never seen it that way. It's always been out of operations. That's current operations. You fund it with tax dollars or you go in the hole. Uh, social infrastructure creates this whole new dynamic where we're going to fund current operations with long-term debt, which uh, you know really is not, a, a, it's an intergenerational kind of uh, unfairness, inequity that we need to address. Does uh, early education, it's not daycare, we've got to stress that. If they do it right, it's early education and care. Does that make a difference? A profound one, according to study after study. 
Is it stimulus? No, not really. The government itself says it isn't really stimulus. It's social spending. Let's call it what it is. Uh, Mr. Giroux, the budget projects a federal debt to reach 51.2% of GDP this year, slowly going down, they say. I guess the new zero on deficits, not just debt, is $30 billion uh, deficit. I, I thought zero was what we're supposed to get to. But this is all before other pro uh, promises. The Prime Minister last week said, you know, in the coming year, I'll be increasing the health care transfer. Given, are they maxed out on capacity for future promises like on health care to the provinces? Well, we released a, a fiscal sustainability report and update in November. We'll do that again in June. But uh, based on the November figures, uh, it seems that they pro the government has probably exhausted all the fiscal room for maneuver that they had in terms of permanent spending without increasing taxes and also without jeopardizing long-term sustainability of the government. So if there is any additional, like significant additional new spending that's introduced in the next months or years, um, it will likely uh, send the debt-to-GDP ratio on an upward trajectory. That is, if it's not accompanied by tax increases. So any new spending um, that's of any significance, I think, will probably either see an increase in the debt-to-GDP ratio for the medium and long term, or will have to be financed by tax increases or reductions in spending elsewhere. Yeah. So that's one concern I have. Joyce, this is a fiscal document, but you know and I know it's a political document. Um, how will this document be wielded in the coming months? They've already survived a couple confidence motions, but this will be their election platform. How's that playing out with the opposition parties? Well, you know, the opposition parties will criticize it because that's what they do. That's their job. We know the NDP has said it. Look, we're going to back them. We're not going to let this government fall because this is not the time for an election. Good. But we know this is an electoral budget. This is as much a political document as it is an economic one. Look, we had the former parliamentary budget officer here uh, looking through this 700-page mammoth uh, on, on Monday, and there are 250 initiatives. Sprinkle, sprinkle, sprinkle across the country. What does that sound like? That sounds like an electoral uh, document to me if I've ever seen one. With $354 billion in deficit, it's not even sprinkle, sprinkle, Joyce. It looks more like a financial <laughs> rainstorm. Shovel, shovel. That's, that's more than a sprinkle. All right, I, I got to leave it there. Uh, Joyce, Amanda, and Eve Giroux, uh, great to have you on the program. Uh, we'll be watching that. Uh, that does it for question period this week. Man, uh, thanks so much for watching. If it's safe to do so, we hope it's getting safer by the day, but not right now. Hug your loved ones. I'll see you tomorrow on CTV's Power Play on CTV News Channel at 5 p.m. Eastern. We will be back here in seven short days. Take good care.